0: This is Filmy Girls Idol Cast. Hit it.
1: i die. Don't land.
0: Taki and Tsubasa with a live performance of their song, Yume Monogatari, which was originally released November 12th, 2003. Like any decent Johnny's and Associates song, it also has mandatory choreography, so please do watch the link performance in the show notes. I dare you to try and keep your arms still, as Taki and Tsubasa do a series of swooshy arm gestures in time to the music the perfect dance for fangirls to learn and perform with the duo at concerts. And for veteran Johnny's fans, bonus points will be awarded for Otakura Ezoing the Backdancing Juniors. When we left off at the end of the last episode, over in Korea, H.O.T. and Skis were riding a brief but shining wave of popularity at the top of the industry. And over in Japan, SMAP were dominating just about everything. And that wouldn't change, as Japan entered the 2000s. And now, it's at this point that male idol groups are really going to start springing up like mushrooms after a rainstorm in both countries, and there are far too many to cover in such a broad overview. So if I leave out your favorite, it's not because I hate them, or that I think they're stupid or unimportant. Folks, believe me. There are a lot of groups I love that I won't get a chance to discuss in depth because they're not part of the story I'm telling. But if people like this series, um, I'm hoping to be able to do more episodes on individual groups in a second season. So please feel free to send me your favorites. Okay, so following SMAP success on the heels of Hikaru Genji and Shonen Ties, respectively disbandment and semi hiatus. Johnny's and Associates began rebuilding their stable of idol groups on the shoulders of an absolutely massive wave of talented trainees, beginning with six-member dance unit V6, who debuted November first, nineteen ninety-five. And then there was the artsy singer-songwriter duo Kinky Kids, who debuted July 21st,
1: 1997.
0: Yeah. No yeah. oh, and along with the debuted groups, the trainees themselves have their own trainee groups. who starred in their own concerts, their own stage plays, and their own television shows as well as getting plenty of ink in the stable of Johnny's and Associates-focused print magazines. We were entering what would later be known as the Golden Age of Johnny's Juniors. In the legendary show Hachiji J, which ran from 1998 to 1999, one popular segment was called Otakura Ezo, or Treasured Video, where they would play clips of old performances from SMAP, Kinky Kids, and v 6 only for the camera to zoom in past the stars to freeze frame the juniors dancing in the background. The studio audience would squeal in appreciation while the trainee himself would laugh or hide his face in embarrassment. It's something that juniors fans and fans of former juniors still do today online. There's an excitement that comes from being able to pick out your favorite in a sea of dancing kids in matching outfits. The thrill of the hunt. These trainees exist somewhere between the professional and the amateur worlds. Their embarrassing failures and youthful naivete are just as much of a selling point as their charisma and performance skills. And underlying everything in the junior world is an edge of desperation and cutthroat competition. A friend can turn into an enemy overnight, stabbing you in the back to grab the spotlight for himself. There is a strong reality show pull to following the juniors, and for a certain kind of idol fan, the drama of the fight for debut is addicting. Five member Arashi, who would debut on November 3rd 1999, were not one of the existing trainee groups. Johnny pulled the three younger members from a popular Johnny's Junior unit called Maine. M, for my boy, the marvelous Matsumoto Jun. A, for ray of human sunshine Iba Masaki. N, for the sarcastic Ninomiya Kazunari who were all 16 years old and then the I was for Iku who would actually go on to become a very respected actor so you should look him up So to the talented trio M-A-N, Johnny added the strong vocals of 18-year-old space cadet Ono Satoshi, who famously thought he was singing a demo for some random group when he recorded their debut single, and the fast tongue of rebellious 17-year-old golden boy Sakurai Sho. But despite their popularity as individual trainees, after an initial burst of interest from the public, Arashi was left to simmer on the back burner. Or to be more accurate, they were left to simmer on low-budget, late-night television. Debuting in the middle of the idle ice age, had turned the dearth of television music shows into a blessing, making their own big break happen by doing sketch comedy with professional comedians on primetime tv. Arashi, on the other hand, were debuting during an idle boom. What could they offer that the other groups couldn't? They weren't skilled performers and handsome older boyfriend types like kinky kids. And they didn't have the knack for improv and comedy like SNAP. And now they were no longer part of the exciting competition of the training world. What could they offer Japan that nobody else could? Well, we'll leave young Arashi here for the moment as they try to figure it out. In March of 2000, Johnny's & Associates partnered up with national broadcaster NHK to start a special monthly live performance show titled Shonen Club. The show was aimed at an audience of teen girls and their moms and their little brothers, and it featured the trainees doing musical performances, games, skits, all on the big stage at NHK Hall, where the the end-of-the-year spectacular Kouhaku Utagasen, among other prestigious shows, was filmed. Shonen Club was like Hachi G.J, but on a much bigger scale. The still-running show was, or rather is, both a training ground for Johnny's juniors so that they can learn how to act in front of a camera, and a way for juniors to develop some name recognition before they debut, because many of them do go on to debut. Arashi's launch may have flopped but Johnny's and Associates continued churning out the talented trainees. They debuted golden duo Taki and Tsubasa, who you heard, on September 11, 2002. Massive Trainee Group News debuted on November 11, 2003. And then there was Osaka-based Kanjani 8, who debuted in August of 2004. So for those playing along at home, that makes eight active groups in 2004, not including Shonen Tai, who were still on their semi-hiatus, but doing Play Zone every year. Still, S.M.A.P. were the undisputed kings, and in 2003, they had what is probably the biggest hit of their career with Seikai ni Hitotsu Dake no Hana, written by the popular singer-songwriter Makihara Noriyuki, and it's become something of a sentimental favorite of S.M.A.P. fans, an anthem of sorts, growing from simply the theme of Kusunagi's popular drama Boku no Ikiru Michi to becoming the third best-selling Japanese single of all time. Of. All. Time. Millions. Of copies. Millions. The lyrics were influenced by the book The Little Prince, as well as by Buddhist philosophy, both things that songwriter Makihara had plenty of time to think about while under house arrest for drug possession. So sa, bokura mo, sekai ni hitotsu dake no hana Hittori hittori chikau tane hana o seru koto dake ni I ii. And that means we're each the only one of our flower in the world everyone holds a unique seed we should try our we should try our best for those flowers to a- nice. The typical sound of early to mid 2000s Johnny's sounded a little more like this. Oh! Wait. keyboard Yell Released May 12, 2004 The simple unison singing And perky beat combined with the Beaming smiles of the singing boys Was enough to sell almost Half a million copies And I find that there's Still something extremely comforting About this style of music Songs from this era are really Good karaoke choices And there's like, like a complete blast To have some drinks and shout along to It's a good era of Johnny's So, in 2004, Johnny's and Associates had three singles ranked in Oricon's Top 20 Best-Selling Singles of the Year. SMAP held steady with the number 11 slot with, yes, The recently debuted News took number 13 with Keeble, and Golden Voice duo Kinky Kids had the number 17 slot. No other idol groups were represented and there were no idol groups among the top 20 best-selling albums either. And then came 2005. In January of that year, two Johnny's trainees appeared in the second series of Yes, a high school-themed drama called Gokusen. These kids were Kamanashi Kazuya and Akinishi Jin, both very appealing in that moody teen bad boy way. Kamanashi with his high cheekbones and sorrowful eyes, was magnetic on screen, and he had an incredible chemistry with his angel-faced co-star, Akanishi. Audiences weren't the only ones who noticed, either. Later that year, Kamanashi was cast in the lead in another high school drama, this one called Nobuta o Produce. Kamanashi played Shuji, a regular high school kid who's drawn into the orbit of two social outcasts, the titular Nobuta and a weird kid named Akira, who was played by News' Yamashita Tomohisa, another former trainee from the Golden Era. The theme song to Nobuto produce was a Latin-flavored mid-tempo ballad titled Seishin Amigo, and it was performed by a special unit of the yet-undebuted Kamanashi and News' Yamashita. Now, the drama was popular, but the song? The song was a blockbuster, selling well over a million copies. I mean, not Smap, but people could not get enough of Station Amigo, or of the two moody teen boys who sang it. And Station Amigo is worth talking about not just because it's incredibly catchy or incredibly popular, but also because it represents the early rumblings of an industry-wide change. Station Amigo wasn't written by a Showa-era stalwart or a Japanese singer-songwriter. It was written by three Swedes. With the closing bell tolling for Western music markets, Europop songwriters were starting to move to Japan. Still, it's not a total departure from the more traditional J-pop style of songwriting. The structure of the song is pretty standard, and the melody is just exotic enough to make it stand out. Neither Yamashita nor Kamanashi have what anyone would call good singing voices, but they are earnest, the melody is forgiving, and Yamashita, especially has an excellent sense of rhythmic timing. The lyrics are sentimental in that Japanese way, and they go like this Si <laughs> 俺 Yes, the two of us were always a pair. Back home, we didn't know about failure, did we? Yes, we'd been dreaming about the big city forever. Believing in it kept us going. I wonder why we hold onto the scenery in our memories. The beautiful sky on the day that we left home. And there's this odd, leg-kicking, flamenco-inspired choreography that goes with the song. And at the end point of the chorus that I just sang... You make a thumbs up, face your partner, and slowly raise your thumbs to the sky. I'll link to a live performance of this song, so you can also do some more Otakura Ezu with the back-dancing Juniors. This was indeed a golden era. These songs are imprinted in my soul. You'll hear Kamanashi sing first, and then Yamashita. Enjoy, me amigos. <laughs>
1: keitai
0: On November 2nd, 2005, was the number one best-selling single of 2005, and the number three best-selling single of 2006. So, who had the number one single in 2006? Well, it was the same group that had the number five and number thirteen singles—a Johnny's and Associates group called Katun, led by Shuji himself, Kamana Shikazia. So where the hell did this group come from and where the hell were they going? Six-member Katun began life as a trainee unit, and they quickly found an audience with Johnny's and Associates fans. While Kamonashi and Akenishi were introducing themselves to the general public with their 2005 drama, Katun was selling concert tickets by the tens of thousands, and even had the number 10 best-selling DVD of the year with a recording of their sold-out Yokohama Arena show, Katun Kaizoku-Pan, or Katoon's Pirate Sale. All hail the Donnies and Associates swaggering bad boy pirate trainees. Building on the momentum of Kamanashi's drama success and the surprise blockbuster Super Duper Megahead Sation Amigo, Katun didn't just debut, they exploded with a concert at Tokyo Dome in front of over a hundred thousand fans, followed by a triple release debut that included a single, Real Face, written by a member of the Bees, an album the cockily titled Best of Cartoon" and a DVD, and they all sold like crazy. Johnny's and Associates' insane scheme actually worked. And Katoon's sound was different. They eschewed the poppy dance songs and sappy ballads that Johnny's and Associates act still specializing for something much, much cooler. <laughs> leaned heavily into Visual K-inspired Raw, with extra extra bad boy member Tanaka Koki adding his guttural rapping, which aimed straight for fangirl's panties. Years later, Koki's pierced penis kicks would make the rounds online, shocking absolutely nobody. like course Koki a prince Of course. Hatoom perform these songs with overtly and aggressively sexual choreography, featuring plenty of hip-rolls and homoerotic teasing to make the girls scream. Look, I'll be honest here. As a long-time idol group watcher, I've been around enough to know that if you start at the top, there's nowhere to go but down, and what's cool is always going to be ephemeral. You can ride a trend, yeah, but you need to get off before it sinks, or you'll sink with it. Khatun would go on to implode in spectacular fashion over the following decade. Dwindling popularity, relevance, sales, and yes, the leaked peen pics, among other scandals. Khatun would never be as popular again as they were on the day of their debut. Khatun burned too bright, too fast, and then overstayed their welcome. The moves that were sexy and cool as fresh-faced 20-year-old were embarrassing at 30. And because they were thrust into the spotlight so quickly, with such a firm bad boy image, that Katun were never really able to develop into anything more than the Pirate Kings. And now in 2018, Kamanashi remains in the spotlight as an actor, but the rest of Katun have sunk far beneath the waves of popular memory. The next song I'll play is Katun's real face. Their debut single and pretty representative of the sound that they never really developed past. A mix of angry guitar and rap. Real Face starts with Kamanashi's tentative vocals. Akanishi then joins in, soaring above, and for a glittering second they harmonize beautifully before the guitars and rap burst through. Imagine six guys swaggering all over the stage, smoky-eyed, feathered hair, decked out in rock and roll furs and leather pants, thrusting their hips at each other, to the shrieks of appreciative fangirls. And yeah, that's a pretty good image of what Katoon was like at their prime. Sa <laughs> o because I've always wanted to live on the edge. Well, I'm gonna break through with everything I have. I'm gonna grab what's real. While Cartoon was selling out Tokyo Dome in 2005 and 2006, our old friends Arashi were still playing the 13,000 seat Yoyogi National Gymnasium. But Arashi was more than ready to step back into the public eye. All this time, Arashi had been working diligently, but without major success. They were still very young, thrown together suddenly as a group, thrust into the national spotlight, and then having that spotlight get bored and wander away. It must have been incredibly frustrating for the young group, watching the other trainees debut and have smash hit songs while they were doing things like midnight ninja training and picking crops in the middle of nowhere. But left to their own devices on late night television, Arashi were able to take some time and figure out how to work together and were able to develop a unique group dynamic. They forged strong teamwork skills and a good sense of unscripted comic timing. They learned how to make the best of ridiculous low-budget time fillers, like underwater experiments with green peppers and hose sumo wrestling. They were cute, yeah, but they were also humble, hardworking, funny, and relatable. They weren't princes or untouchable celebrities, they were guys you wanted to hang out with. Airing opposite Kamanashi's Nobuto Produce was another drama. Marvelous Matsumuro Jun had auditioned for and landed the lead role in an adaptation of the popular manga Hanayori Dango, or Boys Over Flowers. Although the drama alone wasn't enough to derail the upcoming Apocalypse, Hanayori Dango actually beat Nobuta in the ratings, and would spawn a sequel that would air in early 2007, marking a long-awaited sea change in Arashi's fortunes that we'll discuss in the next episode. At the same time, Douai Ninomiya Kazunari had also auditioned for, and landed, an acting role in a feature film, Clint Eastwood's Letters from Iwo Jima, and that would be released towards the end of 2006. Rebellious rapper Sakurai Sho put his quick tongue and sharp mind to use as a newscaster on the prestigious weekly program, News Zero. Things were looking up for our dear lads, but they weren't there yet. The flavor of the mid-2000s was still firmly cartoon. So I'll send Arashi off for the moment with a song from their 2006 album, Arashik, which was also released across the sea in China, Taiwan, and Korea. And it was successful enough to get them on a little mini tour of the region, making Arashi, I believe, the first Japanese idol group to actually perform in Seoul. And this is one of my personal all-time favorite Arashi tracks. Bright, perky, and full of that special, masho. It was written and produced by Shinosuke from the popular hip-hop group Sold Out. That's S-O-U-L apostrophe D. Kito Daijoubu has a heavier backbeat than the usual Johnny's and Associates song. All the better to support Sakurai Show's impossibly fast sakurap, And it's also a pretty good representation of the Arashi sound at the time. Every member gets a solo line, but you mostly hear Ono's smooth J-pop vocals. The video, if you can find it, is gloriously cheesy, full of CGI rainbows and goofy dance moves. And if you look closely, Ninomiya still has a shaved head from his Hollywood debut playing a World War II Japanese soldier. Lucky, baby my groove. Lucky lucky baby, I'm almost done with work.
1: Oh, my groove. make it up to baby, a
0: Idea of where Japan's idol groups are as we hit the mid 2000s. Let's pick back up where we left our friend Lee Soo Man and his SM Entertainment on something of a cliffhanger back in Seoul at the end of the last episode. So in 1997. The collapsing of an investment bubble in East Asia led to a regional financial crisis that hit South Korea especially hard. The won plunged in value. The country had overinvested in manufacturing, and even big automotive companies were teetering on the edge. Desperately needing an influx of cash, the president made a risky decision. The Korean export economy was going to pivot from steel and semiconductors to cultural products. And I can only assume that the thought process went something like, Raise the nation's image as a trendy brand, and you'll be able to sell more than just CDs to global fans. Because as we learned in episode 4, the global image of Korea in the 90s was still that of protests, political violence, and grey authoritarian rule. But now, with official Korean government support, that was going to change. Instead of images of bloodied and angry protesters facing off against government troops, Korea was going to export images of hunky actors romancing gorgeous women in scenic locations. Slowly, the market for Korean movies, television shows, and music began developing in Southeast Asia, China, Taiwan, and yes, even Japan. On March 24th, 1998, during the height of the HOT slash... Jeckski's rivalry, SM Entertainment launched a six-member group called Xinhua. There was dedicated leader Eric, handsome, charismatic, golden boy Minwoo, cheerful Dongwon, reserved lead vocalist Sung, and hard-working, big-hearted Junjin, and then Andy, the baby. They would become as legendary as their name, but not quite yet. After their first album resolver tanked for reasons out of their control. Xinhua faced a tough choice. SM had made it clear that they're not a priority moving forward. Should Xinhua take the hint and quit? Or should they soldier on, relying on their own talents and drive to see them through? Xinhua picked option two. They begged for songs, tried their hand at writing lyrics, created their own choreography. The members picked up work where they could find it, whether it was on radio, variety shows, doing whatever was asked. Xinhua followed in the mold of H.O.T. as a performance-driven unit, with their pinpoint perfect choreography and dance making up an essential part of their style. They also followed H.O.T. vocally, their songs combining smooth R&B sung sections with rap interludes. Their next two albums, T.O.P. and Only One, both did fairly well in Korea, but it just wasn't enough to compete against the already established groups nor against the hugely popular solo ballad singers that dominated the mainstream music scene at the time. Despite their best efforts, Xinhua just couldn't raise their voices loud enough to be heard. And what was SM doing in those years that it was too busy to spend time on Xinhua? Well, SM Entertainment was following the money. And the money was in the brand new cultural export industry. Here's what people sometimes forget. Korea is not that big. They have a population of about 50 million people, much smaller than China, Japan, Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand, the Philippines. For Korea's entertainment industry to have the kind of sales that could drive the economy, they needed export markets. And they really needed the export market of Japan. In 2001, SM Entertainment quietly formed a Japanese subsidiary, SM Entertainment Japan and signed a deal with Japanese record company AVEX Tracks. SM trainees started getting lessons in Japanese and English and Chinese. And on March 13, 2002, AVEX released a Japanese language album by a young female SM artist named Boa. It would debut at number one on the Oricon chart, and would be one of the best-selling albums of the year in Japan, an incredible feat for a Korean artist. And a moneymaker for SM. And something else would happen in 2002 and 2003 that would help boost the profile of Korean cultural products in Japan. A little drama titled Winter Sonata. Tsuyi no Sonata. <laughs> The story is all over-the-top melodrama, full of tragic romance and amnesia, tears, swelling background music, and to say that it was a massive hit in Japan is understatement. It kicked off a Korean craze, with a pretty big cross-section of Japan's female population. There was a travel boom to the filming location, and a new interest in everything Korean, especially its hunky men, as the male lead Byung Jun soon became a household name. The market was clearly there. SM just needed to grab it. But how? HOT were no more, but SM still had Xinhua. They were handsome, talented, charming, and doing fairly well in Korea and even in China and Taiwan and Southeast Asia. But even though SM released only one and the following album, 2002's Perfect Man in Japan, the fangirls just weren't showing up. Why not? Well, if you wanna pause and rewind to the beginning of the episode, remember that Japan was in the middle of an idol group boom, thanks to Johnny's and Associates. It would take more than a catchy tune and six handsome faces to win over the women of Japan. If a woman already liked idol groups, she was currently swimming in content thanks to Johnny's. And if she didn't like idol groups, then SM would need a pretty big hook to get her to sit down and pay attention. Six foreigners singing in a foreign language, no matter how handsome and talented and exotic they were, just wasn't enough to penetrate the lucrative Japanese idol group market. Idol fans want to connect with their idols, and to do that takes more than just an album and some glossy photos. And it didn't help that the group's early material was not particularly memorable. It wasn't bad, not by any means, but it was missing something a spark. I say that, but there's one big exception. One of the early Xinhua tracks that is deservedly still covered by idol groups today is the song Perfect Man. The title track of the album, Perfect Man released March 29, 2002. It embodies the smooth R&B style that's what we think of today as kind of the classic SM sound. The song starts with a Spanish guitar and a wordless vocal run from Dong Wan, and then just as the rest of the group joins in, this melty string line shows up, giving just a tease of the hook before it dropped right into the first verse, a simple drum and bass loop. And then slowly the layers begin to rebuild. And then on the chorus, it's like heaven opens up and the angels themselves are giving you that sweet, sweet high pedal tone on the violin. Listen for that little swoop it does. It gives me goosebumps every time. Good day, man, I Cause you are the one. I'll only know of you, even if my breath ends, because you're the one, I won't go through the ordeal of not having you again, so you'll be able to rest in my embrace. what Shinhua were capable of when given good material. And spoiler alert, this is the sound that they're still making incredible pop songs with today. Not just hits, legendary hits. Shinhua were never the most popular act on the Korean charts. Not in those early days. But their albums did well enough, all the way through 2003, that when their contract ended with SM, SM asked them to renew. Well, all of them except dong At that time, they were the oldest Korean boy band. Let that sink in. Leader Eric Munn would have been just 24. So here's where the truly legendary bit comes in. Xinhua, as a group, said no. They wanted more control, more money, and they were not going to compromise. They didn't split up. The members didn't go solo. Xinhua left SM as a group, and then as a group, signed for the different company. SM said, uh, you can't do that. Xinhua said, well, we just did. SM said, the name Xinhua is ours. Xinhua said, uh, try and take it. Xinhua fought back against SM and won, both their name and their freedom. In 2004, their comeback album, Brand New, on which they had the production credit, was not only a hit record, not only better than anything they'd done before, it also won them the prestigious grand prize, the Daesung, at the Seoul Music Awards, the first boy group to win since way back in 1998, when H.O.T. had been forced to share the prize with our rivals Jekskis. Xinhua were now performing and making music on their own terms and kicking ass at it. And they would continue to do so until the group went on hiatus in 2006, while the members did their military service. We'll pick up with Xinhua again in a later episode because, oh yeah, they come back even better than ever. SM may have had to let Xinhua go, but they had another iron in the fire. A boy idol group known as Dongbang Shinki, DBSK, DBSG, TVXQ, TVFXQ, Toho Shinki, and or the Gods of the East depending on what day it is and where you are currently located. I'm going to refer to them as DBSK for simplicity's sake on this podcast. On December 26, 2003, DBSK made their first appearance at a Boa slash Britney Spears showcase, performing their Chocolate Box debut single, a song titled simply, Hug. The members were 17-year-old yoon the leader, big-eyed pretty voice Jae-jung, rapper Yu chung charismatic joon and in the tradition of Golden Maknae, 16-year-old baby chung These boys were young, talented, and desperate to succeed. And SM was determined that DBSK was going to be no ordinary singing and dancing boy group. DBSK was built for export. Instead of going by their given names, the members were given easy-to-remember nicknames. Mickey, Max... Their material would avoid the controversy of H.O.T. and chin and be carefully chosen to appeal to as broad a market as possible. They would hit both the Asian market and the Diaspora market, selling the image of a modern, trendy Korea. And just to make sure these boys stuck around, these five young teens were signed to 13-year contracts. Remember that last point. Chocolate box single Hug officially released in January 2004, did well in the Korean market, as did their first album. The DBSK boys' smooth R&B vocals and fresh-faced teen dream boyfriend visuals clearly had a niche among fangirls. And that was fine. But success at home was not SM's endgame, and SM was going to try again in Japan with DBSK. But this time, they were going to do it right and mold their product, mold these boys, to suit the tastes and demands of the Japanese market. And so, against a rising tide of Johnny's and Associates entertainment industry domination, on April twenty seventh, 2005, DBSK released their first Japanese-language single. It sank without a trace. But SM wasn't going to give up so easily this time. There was way too much money to be made. They'd seen that with BoA. So DBSK were packed off to Japan to study Japanese, go on embarrassing late-night Japanese television variety shows, and perform wherever they could. They also seemed to have watched a lot of anime for language practice, I guess. But despite DBSK's best efforts, nothing seemed to work. During their first performance at AVEX Track's annual A-Nation Festival in August 2005, the crowd emptied out when DBSK came on. They were the bathroom break act, but DBSK's lack of success in Japan didn't prevent them from gaining traction back home in Korea, as well as in China, Taiwan, and Southeast Asia. Their second album, released September 12, 2005, was a hit across multiple markets. The album mixed smooth R&B ballads, like Tonight, that showcased the powerful voices of Jae and Junsu with catchy dance numbers. The title track of that album, Rising Sun, was an angsty rap-rock dance number, accompanied by an intense music video which features DBSK in all their floppy-banged, leg trousered mid-2000s glory, angstily dancing in, like, a church, or something, against sort of, like, generic Christian imagery, which I can only assume is another nod to the foreign markets that considered Christian imagery to be very exotic and sexy. It's true, believe me. I've seen enough sexy nun dramas to know about that. But the next song I'll play isn't the Angry Rising Sun, but a shmoopy cutesy song titled Balloons from their third album, Oh, released September 26, 2006, and built from the same type of song mix that hit big with Rising Sun. Oh is a pretty good benchmark for generic export market-oriented K-pop in the mid-2000s. The album sold well across Southeast Asia, China, and Taiwan and it even won the Song at the Seoul Music Awards for 2006, in deep contrast to the romantic angst of Rising Sun. Balloons has the group all dressed in rather disturbing, over-the-top cutesy animal costumes and prancing around a living room set. I'll link to the video so you can see for yourself. Jaejoong's Chung's sheer shirt alone it's creepy in the way that child stars acting out adult fantasies are always creepy. And keep in mind that in 2006, the guys would have been around like 19, 20, 21 years old. The making of video that accompanied the single shows the members robotically putting on cheesy smiles for the cameras. As someone who has been around the idol group fancene a long time, it's not an easy video to watch. this is where we'll leave DBSK for now, in 2006 gaining momentum at home, and in China, Taiwan, and Southeast Asia. That's still knocking on the door in Japan. 2007 and 2008 are going to have a lot of big changes in store for both DBSK and Arashi, so hold on for episode 6. But before I sign off, I want to say that what fascinates me about DBSK in this era is just how out of control of their own careers and even of their own lives they seem to be. We'll never know the full truth of what happened to them, but we do know this. The group members have spoken candidly of feeling intense depression and homesickness during their extended stays in Japan. But what could they do? They were told to go, so they went. None of the members were contributing to the albums musically or seemed to have a voice in their material or image. And while SM had by this point picked up on the Johnny's and Associates best practices regarding the kinds of behind-the-scenes materials SMAP had started producing, SM took it a step further. Fans didn't just get to see DBSK backstage at their concerts, or on, like, a television set. DBSK took fans on a video tour of their shared apartment, and in a series of interviews for cable channel Mnet that aired in 2006, The boys talked candidly about wanting to escape to the beach to see the sunrise, to escape to the past, to escape to anywhere that wasn't here. Overworked and overtired, DBSK seemed so honest and earnest in front of the cameras. I mean, it's no wonder fangirls fell head over heels for these five guys. They were cute and likable. You know the intellectual spilling deep thoughts in front of the camera while all hell breaks loose around him. Junsu and Yu Chun's bromance—the pair clearly very fond of each other. Jae Jung's sharp mind and sharper tongue. Changmin, the introvert, seeking his place in life. And then there's this: on October fourteenth, two thousand six, an anti-fan actually poisoned. You know by posing as a staff member and handing him a drink that had been laced with something. Yuno got very sick and was hospitalized, and the anti fan turned herself into the police a few days later. Yuno has recently said in an interview that he got panic attacks after the poisoning incident. I can believe it, because one dark thread I haven't touched on at all are the Korean sussang fans, or stalker fans. Maybe they would have gone after DBSK anyways, but the false intimacy of their image and the new ability to send information quickly and anonymously over the internet surely couldn't have helped. DBSK were the perfect targets for these stalker fans, and they went after the boys like heat-seeking missiles. An infamous and anonymous list of things that stalker fans did to DBSK includes items such as saving up their menstrual blood to send to them, tapping their phones to make sure they weren't calling women, and breaking into their homes to try and kiss them while they were asleep. And who knows what the reasoning was, maybe they didn't want to turn fans against the group, but nobody with any sort of authority seemed either willing or able to step up and protect DBSK from this madness. In one interview with Jae Jung from this era, he pleads with the fans watching to understand the need for some distance. He says one time, after singing happy birthday to a girl at a fansign event, they were accosted by crying fans asking for their special days to be recognized as well. It's my thousandth day of liking you, Opa," Jae grimly mimics. Sing for me, too! Go back and search their performances on YouTube from this era, and you'll see blank faces. More than anything, DBSK seem like they're simply gritting their teeth and powering through one more song, one more show, one more day, And on top of that, their costuming, album art design, and even song selection show very little personality. Everything they do, or rather everything chosen for them, seems rather plain and inoffensive. Desperate to blandly appeal across numerous countries and cultures, watching DBSK from this era really does feel like the awful stereotype of marionette boys dancing to songs they don't like and don't understand. It's really, really sad, and a big contrast to the shiny happy image I remember from my days kicking around Asian pop fandom on LiveJournal back then. Show business isn't easy, and certainly being an idol isn't easy, but there's a difference between something being difficult and something being traumatic. I don't know how DBSK managed to get through those years, nor the years that are to come, and I don't say this to make anybody feel guilty for liking DBSK. I like DBSK. But part of being a real idol fan, I think, is acknowledging the dark side and the trauma that we as fans can inflict on the groups that we love. Stories like that of DBSK are one reason I try to model good fan manners for younger fans, and one reason that I really wanted to do this podcast. And on that depressing note, and because we didn't get to talk about them, I'll close out this episode with one of my favorite Kinky Kids tracks. The number nine best-selling single of 2001, "Boku no Seina ni Hanegare," there are wings on my back. See you next time.